So um, this is our last uh, formal Dharma talk. Maybe some more Dharmets to come in the time that we have left. And so um, we'll see what we do here. And if um, somebody asked me what is the essence of uh, these teachings, you know, I would say um, awareness and heart or mindfulness and love. I think that's what it really boils down to. And the Dhammapada says to purify the mind and the heart is the is the, the greatest of gifts, the gift of the Dharma. To purify one's heart. And to purify one's heart, I think it's is the qualities of developing our awareness and our ability to um, open the heart. And of course, when you bring these two together, a fusion happens that perhaps is even greater than each one alone, and that is wisdom. Wisdom is born out of this confluence, this synergy, this fusion of awareness, mindfulness, insight, and heart, love, compassion. Jill mentioned earlier, um, although sometimes the loving-kindness practice can be separated from the insight practice, in my own experience with practice, that they are very much intertwined. And intertwined for me in the sense that the more that I've cultivated awareness, cultivated that sense of inner sensitivity of my own suffering and also being much more aware of the suffering of others, the suffering of myself and others, and that has naturally brought the heart to open because of that awareness. And um, the infusion of this practice of awareness and heart brings upon a sense of kindness. It's amazing as I had the wonderful opportunity to live with forest monks for eight and a half years little short time in Burma and much more time here in the United States in a Buddhist forest monastery, a Burmese one. And my sense of uh, hanging out, practicing with these monks that have practiced for years and years and years is just the incredible amount of kindness that uh, just uh, was expressed and felt from them. And actually, in the canonical literature, there's a beautiful little story of after the Buddha died, and Ananda, who was um, the Buddha's cousin and attendant, and he is also a great memorizer. He memorized every single teaching that the Buddha taught. And after the Buddha's death, he recited that, and that began an oral tradition of orally Trans, you know, orally teaching these, uh, reciting these canonical literature because Pali was a oral language and it was 500 years later transliterated into Selenese script on banana palms. 
just a little side note, a friend of mine who's a monk in Burma um, met a couple of elder monks in Burma who maybe about 20 years ago thought, is it really possible to memorize the entire canonical literature, the Tapitaka, the baskets of the suttas, and the virtue, the ethics, and the Abhidhamma, the psychology? And a friend of mine actually met one of these monks who actually did memorize the complete Tipitaka and asked him, how long does it take you to do it? And he says, well, I recite eight hours a day and it takes me a month and a half. So it gives you kind of a sense of the Olympic <laughs> nature of memorization. But coming back to Ananda. So Ananda loved the Buddha very much and after he died, it was reported that um, he was out in the forest and he was weeping. And he was just repeating again and again and again, he was just so kind. He was just so kind. He didn't say that he was so wise, although he was immensely wise. But he just kept on saying he was just so kind. And I, I just love, that's right, in the canonical literature, it's just so kind. And, you know, I even love that the Dalai Lama says, you know, my religion is kindness, and kindness is a language of the heart. It's universal. And hanging out with these monks, there was a sense of kindness and curiosity and humility. Deep, deep humility. One of my beloved teachers, Lyndit Soto, and he was my beloved teacher for 25 years till he died at the age of 98. And he assumed such a humble presence, even though he had many, how they count how many years you're a monk is by how many rain retreats you've completed. And being 98, he had completed 78 years in the robe. You start at the age of 20. Before that, you're a novice monk, but those years don't count. But he was a novice monk since he was a boy. And yet, Sierra was incredibly humble. We would go out to visit uh, different students in the car, in the van, and, and my, many other monks, when you'd go on trips in the cars, like the senior monk would always, they would just go right to the front seat, sit in the front seat, and the other monks sit in the back. And lined at Sierra, he, he never knew that he was supposed to sit in the front seat. <laughs> just so humble and kind. We have to, no, Sero, Sero, come, come up here. You're, you're, the, you're the senior monk here. And Lainet Sero was a type of person that was very unassuming, very self-contained. Actually, I lived with him for eight and a half years, and I can say he was truly the most contented, at-ease human being I had ever experienced. And I lived with this guy for eight and a half years. He was chilled out. <laughs> he was kind. And he was very unassuming and incredibly, incredibly humble. He could actually just sit in his room and be happy and not have to go anywhere. He didn't have to be anyone. He didn't assume specialness. He didn't include, uh, also though, there wasn't like a sense of inflation or deflation. So he didn't go to deflation either. He didn't go to inflation. He just was, he was the embodiment of mind your own dharma. He didn't need to be a teacher. He didn't need to be seen. He was just, he was just so contented with who he was. 
in a very humble and unassuming way. So unassuming that if you went into a room and Sero was sitting there, you might notice the lamp first before you saw Sero. Some people, they have a, they, they're charismatic. And actually, my other teacher, Temple Lucero, was very charismatic. Even though he was very quiet, there's some charismatic quality that just was just part of his personality matrix. But Lionel Seto had the opposite of charisma. <laughs> it was like a black hole. <laughs> it was like, you, you, I'm serious, you may not notice that he'd be in the room. You might notice something else first. And it took a, quite a while for like, all of a sudden I turned to like, who is this guy? Who is this guy? This, this, this person is really different. So kindness. And there was this little bit of mischief. One time um, I offered my room to a visiting monk and Sero said to me, okay, you can come and stay with me. It was like Christmas Eve. I was like the happiest guy in the world. I get to sleep with my Sero tonight. And Sero, he had the practice of not lying down. <laughs> so this is <laughs> very extreme. Uh, my other teacher, Tampulu Sero, he didn't lie down for the last 50 years of his life. This is an ascetic practice. Why? They do this to have less sleep, more time to meditate. Now they had cushiony chairs, but they did the practice of sitting. And Lainetsero also did the sitting practice for many, many years. So I was at the foot of his chair, lying on the bed, and I was just so excited. It was like Christmas Eve. And I turned over and looked on the other side, and he eventually fell asleep. And then I wondered, I got up in the middle of the night, and I, wonder, I, I said, I wonder what he's doing. What's the Seattle doing? And I slowly turned around and looked, and he just looked at me and winked. It's like, <laughs> like what? WTF? And so then I, got a, I was on my back, and I fell back to sleep, and then gradually I woke up again. I'm just so excited. What's he doing now? It's like middle, late in the night, and I just turn a little bit to one side, and he just winks at me again. It's like, I'm kidding. So then I kind of roll over, and I'm facing him, and I fall back to sleep. It's the wee hours of the morning, and I wake up again so excited, and I wonder to myself, what is he doing now? And I open up my eyes. I don't even have to move my body. I just open them up just a little teensy bit, and he's looking at me, smiling. <laughs> 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 Who was this guy? I don't know. Deep humility, deep kindness. On my last um, time with him, I traveled to Burma to see him. It was a very wonderful thing. My wife secretly um, sent out a note to all of my friends entitled, Bob Goes to Burma. <laughs> <laughs> and um, one night she presents to me this huge envelope with cards from, I don't know, so many people with money in it saying, we want you to go see your teacher one more time. It was really a just total surprise, blew me away. So I got a chance to go and see him one last time. He was in his 90s. He had gone back. And um, so I was there for a couple of weeks, and on the very last night, I was 
paying my respects and and um, you know and realizing that um, you know he's in his 90s and I'm heading back and I may never see him again and truth was that after I left I never did see him again he died a couple of years later they still had one question for this yellow and so that night I asked it and I asked him very sincerely Seto, what are you going to do when death comes knocking at your door? You're in your 90s, and let's face it, you know, you're, this is already a little bit after the, human, the life, average lifespan, and, and he's been meditating for you know, all these years. I'm like, what are you going to do? And he looked at me for quite a while, and then he asked me a question that kind of threw me off guard. He said, Bob, are you afraid to die? And uh, I didn't ask you that question. I asked you what you're going to do. And um, he saw that I was shaking up, and he said to me, Bob, you need to meditate more. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, you're right, Seattle. <laughs> so I again paused for a minute, and then I asked the same question again. And then I kind of waited, and... He just kind of sat silently for a while, and, and then he said something to me that I'll never forget, and I'll pass it on to you. He said that if I see something while I'm dying, I will be mindful of seeing. If I hear something, I'll be mindful of hearing. If I smell something, I'll be mindful of smelling. If I taste something, I'll be mindful of tasting. If I feel something, I'll be mindful of feeling. If there's different thoughts or different emotions that are arising in awareness, I will be mindful of those thoughts and emotions in awareness. This is how I will die. This is how I want you to die. That was an incredible gift. To die with awareness. So, uh, not that I look forward to dying, but I hope that when I am dying that I am fully awake for that experience don't want to be asleep if at all possible and of course you know we really can't choose it, it's just we'll just say but I want to be there Peter Pan calls it the great adventure that's what it is to die <laughs> so the Peter Pan spirit but what what is here so I love that teaching I once told this to my hundred-year-old grandmother what the Sero said about dying and she looked at me she's an old Jewish lady from Russia she goes she says you know Bobby he's pretty wise so she even liked that and she wasn't even a meditator but she liked the idea of dying with awareness dying being present so there's this quality of the practice heart and awareness brings deep kindness. My other teacher, Tung Pulusero, was, was also, with a, a similar way, incredibly kind, incredibly humble, but he was also very charismatic. But he actually never referred to himself as I. He, he always referred to himself as this monk. And actually, when he gave Dhamma talks, I, I've told my friends about this, but I don't think I've ever said this in a Dharma talk, is that when he would give a Dharma talk, and this is why sometimes if you see my eyes close a lot, this is from Tempo Lucero, is that when he would give a Dharma talk, he'd get, he had this big fan, 
It was like this big fan that you like, you know, to cool yourself up. And he'd hold this big fan in front of him. On the other side could be a picture of a moon of bunny rabbits, <laughs> and <laughs> or whatever people offered to him. And and then he would just just talk into the fan. Like he he had no eye contact with anyone because I think his sense. I think my sense of it was he never. I never. We asked him why, but it was like. But it wasn't about him. Like he referred to himself as this monk. This is great. Humility, and I find sometimes when I speak with my eyes closed, um, yeah, I don't know, it brings me in touch with the Seattle. Because it's really not about me, of course. It's about the teachings. The Buddha said, let the teachings be the teacher and honor the elders. The elders teach us about kindness and about seeing clearly into the way things are helps to develop more deeper inner contentment and ease and a heart full of love, compassion. This is really the summation of what Bruce was saying in that last uh, Eightfold Noble Path, the path that leads to liberation. So I will speak a little bit about this, but there's more because I want to fuse together these qualities of awareness and heart. The Eightfold Path is this wisdom that begins with the understanding of suffering and that there is a cause and that there's a pathway to greater freedom. And I love that uh, Bruce mentioned at the end of uh, his talk, like looking at the word suffering, and maybe it's uh, suffering as a doorway, welcoming suffering as a doorway into the path of liberation. However, for many of us, when we hear that, that feels very counterintuitive. Turning into the suffering? Are you kidding? I want to get away from it. I don't want to have anything to do with it. Here's a little reading from Hafiz, who, he's one of my beloved buddies. Mm-hmm. And I think you'll appreciate what he has to say here. He goes, not many teachers in this world can give you as much enlightenment in one year as sitting all alone for three days in your closet. That would do. So we've been here four days in our closet. (laughs) And that means not leaving. Uh Uh-uh. You better get a friend to help you with a few sandwiches and you better get yourself a chamber pot. (laughs) No reading. Uh Uh-uh. No writing poems either. That would be cheating. Let's aim for the high 360-degree detox, but this sitting alone is not recommended if you're normally sedated. But dear one, don't let Hafiz fool you. There is a ruby buried inside here. Don't let Hafiz fool you. There is a ruby buried inside here. So we think about the ruby. That's another metaphor for the nature of awakening is inside here. But again, this notion of turning in towards the pain, welcoming the pain, it really is counterintuitive. I mean, I can understand for many of us. And, you know, growing up outside of Boston, we get snowy winters. And I remember after getting my license, uh, driving in Boston and surrounding areas, and inevitably getting into skids. 
And of course, when I got into skid, it scared me, and I impulsively turned away from the skid and only found myself skidding out more. This went out for a long time, and then I told my dad about it, and he said, Bob, if you want to get out of the skid, you've got to turn into it. That scared me. I ain't going to turn into that. I didn't believe that. So I kept turning away, and I kept on skidding out. And I think at a certain point during the wintertime, with a lot of driving, I finally reached the futility of realizing turning away was not going to help. I was only getting in worse situation. And I'll never forget this one day where I just very slightly and gently began to turn towards the skid, even though it scared me. But I realized turning away was not going to help, and jamming on my brakes didn't help either. And I couldn't, I'll remember, it was a visceral feeling in the body, a pleasant feeling tone. As I began to experience, my car began to start to straighten out. It was amazing. And I believe at that day, there was a, a powerful seed that was planted inside me. And it's laid dormant and sprouted and laid dormant and sprouted and laid dormant and sprouted throughout my life. But it was a seed of beginning to understand that if I begin to turn into my pain, into my fear, into my shame, into my top 40 of whatever that is, that I would straighten out, that there's something there for me, that there's a ruby buried inside here. It's also important to say, as we work in the context of our practice, as we're sitting here, you know, I'm, I'm just doing nothing. I'm just sitting here, and like all this shit's arising. Like, I didn't ask for this, but it's coming. Our pain, our fears, our traumas, our stories, our anxieties. The Jewish technical word is the chazarai. It's all <laughs> coming up in spades. What do we do with it? What do we do when it's coming up? Do I begin to turn into it a little bit? And what does it mean to turn into it? Does it mean that I begin to acknowledge what's here? Rather than trying to turn away from it? Have you ever noticed every time you turn away from your pain, just when you're not looking, there's a little... I'm back again. It's also fair to say, as we, if we discern to begin to turn into the pain, turn into the shame, turn into what's here emotionally, physically, and I, I think that you will probably uh, get this from your own experience if you've turned in, that often when we begin to first turn in, it has this sense of getting bigger, magnifying, amplifying. Has anybody had that experience? Yeah. There's a reason behind that. So if you're in the dark night and you turn on a flashlight, you can see really more clearly what's in front of you. And so mindfulness is like a flashlight. And now I'm beginning to turn into this pain. It's like, whoa! So it's important to know when you begin to turn in and there's that, whoa! So often at that critical point, we, for many of us, exit stage right. I'm out of here. It's too intense. However, we breathe in and out and perhaps play with it a little bit, we begin to see that that intensity begins to dissipate. We can begin to go further. We often don't recognize that we can get through that threshold because the threshold is so intense. 
if we hang with it a bit. And part of that hanging, as I mentioned earlier in the week, about this sense of that I'm feeling safe enough and I'm kind of curious. I want to kind of know what's going on in here. And I got, some, I'm, I got some energy. I'm up for it. And so I can stay with that little space. Play with that little space. Potentially making my way through that space. There's a, some writings from a monk, Christian monk in the Middle Ages, Francis Fenelon. And he kind of describes this process so beautifully and so descriptively and, and only what Middle Age language, uh, the times of the Middle Ages and some of the language that might have been used in the metaphors. So anyways, it goes, uh, as the light of awareness increases, we see for ourselves to be worse than we thought. So that's the flashlight. Oh, OMG. We see for ourselves to be worse than we thought as the light increases and we are amazed at our former blindness as we see issuing forth, forth from the depths of our heart a whole swarm of shameful feelings like filthy reptiles crawling from a hidden cave. We never could have believed that we had harbored such things and we stand aghast as we watch them gradually appear. But while our faults diminish and the light by which we see them waxes brighter, we are filled with horror. But please bear in mind for your comfort that we only perceive the malady when the cure begins. Very hopeful. Bear in mind for your comfort we only perceive the malady when the cure begins. When we bring awareness, we see what is here. With awareness, we can begin to make some change. If we're unaware, it'll go on for a long time. I remember Tampulucero, it, it seemed so, like, huh? He, he would ta often talk about this metaphor, like, well, who's worse? The, the, the person that knows that they're, they're killing people left and right or the one that doesn't know? And I'd say, the one that... I said to him, the, the one that knows is worse because they should know better. And actually, he said, no, actually, they, they, since they know better, they will eventually realize that they're killing and stop. But the one that doesn't know will go on. And so there's such a powerful emphasis on awareness. He said, even if you feel greedy and you're aware of greed, you're gaining knowledge. Even if you're aware of raging hatred, if you're aware of it, you're gaining knowledge. If you're aware that you're grasping and craving and wanting and you're aware of it, you're gaining knowledge. If you're not aware of it, you're accumulating ignorance. So much emphasis on knowing. Knowing will bring us knowledge. That's why Tampulu Cero used to say, one moment of mindfulness, which he described as 10 snappings of a finger, is better than having lived a hundred years without ever practicing mindfulness. So much emphasis on awareness. Awareness can begin to set us free. And so this awareness in the Eightfold Path begins with the awareness that there is indeed suffering and we have some sense of, some understanding of these causes and that there's a path to freedom. 
we begin to understand with our understanding and intentions to renounce these tendencies that are self-destructive. This is actually a wonderful translation for renunciation, which many of us fear. Renunciation, oh my God, I'm going to have to give something up. But actually the deep meaning of renunciation from the Dharma is giving up those self-destructive tendencies that emburden the heart, imprison the heart. And then there's the gathering because of we understand this, this loathing or these self-destructive tendencies don't serve ourselves nor others, the other qualities of intention of the heart, of, of non-harming, ahimsa, the qualities of friendliness, loving-kindness, metta, begin to grow. And with these understandings, we begin to want to get, to get our lives together. So this is the heart of the Eightfold Path, is to live in a way that supports wisdom. And we begin to understand that living our ways with integrity, we all understand at times when we're living out of integrity, that living out of integrity informs us, I'm not happy, I'm worried, I'm, I'm, I'm filled with remorse or regret. So we can say that living with integrity gladdens the heart, steadies the mind and the body. We, put, we went at the beginning of the retreat speaking about those beautiful qualities of, of the five precepts of non-killing, non-stealing, not committing sexual harm with our speech that is honest, to not get intoxicated. And the qualities that these support the mind and the heart to be happier. Like, like one of the, the, the things that can really support us when we leave is these trainings of the precepts. The trainings of the heart of like due to our interconnection that we share with all living beings, I undertake the trainings of causing the least harm. Maybe it's impossible to do no harm, but we're in relationship with these precepts and how do I begin to train in such a way to cause the least harm to myself and to others. Living in this way gladdens the heart and the mind. We become mindful of our speech, our thoughts, and our actions. Bruce also spoke last night of this... Um, second realization of the Buddha of the causes of suffering. And to me, this is one of the most instructive and important teachings to like, there's a cause. And of course, the applications on how to resolve these causes for more freedom is vital. But to know that these causes are very, very helpful. And just to go over just for another, just like another slice of that, that um, the, the primary cause with all suffering is unawareness. I've been speaking about that, this not seeing clearly. Again, Tempulu Sero, he says that midnight is dark and the new moon is dark and the thickness of the forest is dark, but darkest of all is ignorance. We're not seeing, we're not knowing. And out of that ignorance or that not seeing clearly gives rise to the sense of wanting. 
grasping. Who spoke about the first um, cause of suffering fueled by unawareness is this grasping for sensual delight. I want to feel good. And somehow there's some belief that begins to happen due to a misconception that somehow outside of myself I can get that lasting happiness. This is kind of the roots of addiction in some ways. Like I just want to feel good. Never forget when I was eating this ice cream one day and I was just in the land of satiation. It was heaven. And then I noticed I had one more bite and then like, what the hell am I going to do now? <laughs> Back to myself again. So perhaps there's a song from the Rolling Stones, I can't get no satisfaction. <laughs> That's the craving for sensual delight. And the craving to be someone. I'm special. I'm Bob. I drive a Prius. I mean, it goes on and on. <laughs> Some people are like, who kids it down if you drive a Prius? But I, I feel really special. I drive a Prius. You know, or, or whatever. I mean, like, it's I, I, I. And again, the country western song, I'm looking for love in all the wrong places. Somehow, you have to verify that I'm okay because inside me there's a core deficiency. It's like there's the deficiency. I have to get these pleasures to be whole. There's a deficiency. The third type of craving is the craving to feel nothing. I just want to get sedated. I don't want to feel anything. I don't want to, I, I just want to, I don't want to be here. So that song is from Simon and Garfunkel. I am a rock. I am an island. And a rock feels no pain and an island never cries. I am not going to be touched. The craving to feel nothing. The craving to be someone. The craving to, for sensual delight. And not that the, you know, the, the ice cream is wrong or whatever, but, if so, you know, but all these things, if, if there's some belief that there's a deficiency inside, I'm not worthy. Then we're looking outside to fill this gap. Born out of a belief of deficiency that we are not enough. And, you know, the thing is, I think, as human beings, is we're longing to come home. But we're, we're looking for that longing outside of us. There's a longing to be united, to break the pain of disconnection, of separation, of isolation that longing. And so I want to invite you all in our practice to sit with that longing. Is it really that person or that thing? What is really being longed for? It's a powerful question to ask ourselves in practice and to sit with the longing, feel the longing. It's very interesting. There's a, a, a play of, uh, of words with, with longing. I was actually looking it up this actually, I, I first heard about this from, from Tara Brock, that there's some, some etymological connection <laughs> rather than a entomological, entomological um, not ants, but, <laughs> and, but that, 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 that the desire comes from the Latin desidere, but then de is fr means from, and then, then somehow it's connected to another word, desidious, which is star, and it's like, this, it's like this longing or belonging to the stars. There's some connection between the stars and desire in some older way, old translation. 
And it's kind of interesting when you play with it that way because, you know, science will actually verify as we begin to break into atoms, into protons, into neutrons, into electrons, and these particles that are found here and everywhere. That's why Albert Einstein said that separation is actually an optical delusion of our consciousness. He wasn't any... This is Albert Einstein, not the Buddha. He was talking about the, the separation is an optical delusion of our consciousness because the, the innate matter that makes up atoms is found here and everywhere. You know, there's that old song from the 60s, we are made of stardust, but there's actually some truth to that. And I'm not just being flaky here. The, the, the science that's backing that up, the particles, the protons, the neutrons, the electrons, these things, they are found here and everywhere. sense of separation from a scientific point of view is challenged as far as is there that separation. So there's a longing. So I think we have to recognize that you know, why perhaps we reach out. There's a longing for unification. Why does it feel so good when I'm satiating? Because I'm at home. I'm at ease. But it's but what we're grabbing onto is intrinsically impermanent. It's like trying to hold water that's slipping through the hands. It's slipping through because it's outside of us and somehow we've identified that this is what will bring me home. Ramana Maharshi of India, one of the great saints of India, he was dying of cancer. And his students were saying, please don't go, Maharaj, please don't go. And supposedly Maharaji said, where am I going? Where am I going? We don't often feel that way, but I think I said the other day that, that song from Paul Simon, that moment of grace when your brain just takes a seat behind your face. I think we all at various times in our lives have moments where we do feel connected. We do feel at home. Not only with ourselves, but with the entire universe. And then it goes away. It's that longing to, to be at home. And where is home? Is it outside? Whereas Achan Shah would say, if you want to find your home, you want to know the Dharma, you don't have, you have to read any books. Read this book, your own heart, your own longings, your own journey, your own pain. The senses of separation are born out of our stories of separateness. These stories are very powerful. We kill each other and ourselves and do most horrendous things to ourselves, to others, because of these stories. And of course, these stories are what make up our lives. You know, we grow up and we become Bob, and Bob's got a story, and this and that. And finally, the day comes, we finally begin to individuate from our parents. And then at a certain point in our lives, we begin to see who it is that we've become. And then that's the beginning of, oh my God, who I've become. And uh, to begin to untangle the tangle. We can't bypass these stories. This is very important. Otherwise, it's a spiritual bypass. Oh, this is just the Bob show. But if Bob doesn't deal with the Bob show seriously, so this, this practice, it's an incredibly personal practice. It's working with our stories, and it's incredibly impersonal as we begin to realize it's just stories but the wise discernment between the two. It's important that we don't bypass what's going on here. To me, the Buddha's awakening was breaking free 
of the stories of the heart. Sometimes he's known or referred to as the unconditioned, and that implies a condition that broke through the conditioning, the narrative, the story of who one thinks one is. That these are limited definitions of who we think we are. You know, this morning, the sharing about, well, you know, I'm self-indulgent. So that's a, that's a story. And I mean, we, and I don't want to pick on you. We can pick on, you know, I, I'm not a good writer. I was told, I was brought up, uh, or th- I'm sure there's many things that we could say about it, like, I'm not this, I'm not that. So we have stories about ourselves that begin to enslave us. There was a dear, you know, when I was growing up, my Uncle Sidney, I, I used to like peanuts and go to my grandmother's house and I'd go get, go get some peanuts out of the cup and he'd say, dear, here comes the claw, here comes the claw. <laughs> what a thing to call a kid, the claw, here comes the claw. <laughs> Another friend of mine's father called them King Minus. Oh. Everything you touch breaks. Oh. Yeah, you feel that in your gut. The stories that we tell ourselves all the time. Remember one time in a mindfulness class, this woman in her, in her 60s says, there's been, I can't remember a day in my entire adult life when I didn't call myself an asshole. Mm-hmm. Another person said, well, I don't say that, but I call myself a dummy, or I call myself stupid. We know these inner conversations, these stories that we have with ourselves that enslave us, that we've believed in to be me. The Buddha broke through these stories could see the limited definitions that enslaved our hearts. Carl Jung has a very powerful statement. He says, I feed the hungry and I can forgive an insult and I can love my enemy and that these are great virtues, but what if I should discover that the poorest of the beggars and the most impudent of the offenders are all within me and that I stand in the need of the alms of my own kindness and that I myself am the enemy who must be loved. That I stand in the need of the alms of my own kindness and that I myself am the enemy who must be loved. And so what else is there to do? Turning into this heart, even if there's pain. And you know, Franz Kafka says in a quote, he says something like, you know, you have pain and you have your choice on whether you want to deal with, deal with it or not. But if you don't deal with it, you get two pains. So it may be actually more efficient to work with the one. That's the second and third arrow. But as I mentioned, this turning into is not easy. Yes, counterintuitive. And sitting with ourselves, such a peaceful environment here, and we realize it's not as peaceful inside. But we're in a place of developing our hearts and our awareness, and as we cultivate the qualities of safety that are so important in this type of a sacred space of this deep inner sacred work of the heart, we may begin 
if we're feeling safe, to investigate more closely what's here. And that safety is very important because as some of us, maybe we're living with PTSD or we just, maybe it's just too much to open and to move towards these pains and that's to be understood. Sometimes, particularly with PTSD, a lot of trauma, just to be able to survive is the, and, and not deal with it is the only way. But it's from a, words from an old Grateful Dead song. You can run, but you can't hide. And there may come a time when we meet, begin to turn in. So the soul permission, listening to our own hearts on whether we turn in or perhaps just pause for a bit. So we, taking care of ourselves is so important. we deem that we are getting a little bit curious about this in the context of our practice, we may want to begin to bring some investigation to it. And of course that investigation first begins with awareness that there actually is something going on under the hood. The first quality of awakening is mindfulness and that mindfulness brings us into a place where we begin to become curious and want to investigate what's here second factor of awakening, investigation. And of course that propels us, we're getting interested in that, getting energy and so forth. But what's here? One moment perhaps I'm lost in the spin of my pain and the next moment I awaken. Oh, a lot of sadness, a lot of pain here right now. And those moments we can begin to potentially move in towards it. So we may want to ask ourselves, where, where do I start? Well, you start from wherever it is that you are. Let's say, for example, I'm, I'm just feeling some feelings and I don't even have a name of what those feelings are, but I know that there's some feelings there. And what would it be like just to allow myself to feel those feelings? Or perhaps more strikingly, and there's a wonderful word that I've become very fond of. It's called the cringe. As we're sitting inside ourselves meditating, there's something arises and it's like this... <coughs> So that, that's the definition of a cringe. It's, a, it's like, oh, like shame, like, ugh, like filthy reptiles crawling in a hidden cave. It's like, ugh, that one. You know that one? You know what I'm talking about? That guy? And often when it's, it's so smelly and disgusting and shameful, I, don't, I just didn't want to deal with it. But if you're up for it, check it out a little bit. There may be a ruby buried inside there. The cringe, or on the internal Richter scale meter of emotionality, hmm, there's something here. Maybe I need to pay attention. So there's a wise discernment here. When we come to, let's say, four corners, and we can, have to, we can go straight, we can go left or right or backwards or stay where we are, like, there's a level of discernment. Do we choose to move in? Is that the wise thing to do? Or do we, perhaps, I'm just going to sit on my hands and I, I'm just not going to go there. This is not beneficial. And maybe that's wise. Maybe it's wise if we're having some practice. This is just old, you know, I've got the coffee mug and the t-shirt. I've seen this. I've been there a thousand times. Like, no thank you, just mental formations. That might be the wise thing to do. If it really is that. Or if there's any way that there's some subtle way of just just um, kind of bypassing this and just knowing you're enlightened anyways, it will keep on coming, believe me. 
It's very popular in the meditation circles with this new acronym, well, not new, but an acronym called RAIN. Some of you may have heard of this. To, to recognize that it's there, to accept it, to be aware of it, to investigate it, and non-identify non with it. The non-identification is not easy. You can quickly say to yourself, non-identify, so you don't have to feel what's there. The wise discernment, when do I move into something? When do I, with wisdom, know it's just something to be named and watch it come and go? So I, wanna, so I just want to just point to that wise discernment. There's not any one way. But let's be wise and not bypass what's here. So I'd like to give an example of an investigation that happened to me some years ago just to give you a sense of um, what I mean by investigation. And so I was on the phone one day having a conversation with a hospital administrator about mindfulness and getting increasingly angry. And then I began uh, then I looked at my watch and saw that I had to get off the phone because I had to go teach a meditation. And so fortunately, I got off the phone without burying the bridge, and as I drove to the meditation hall, I was... And I get into the meditation, and welcome, everybody. <laughs> and let's all bring our awareness to our breath. And I went to bring my awareness to my breath. That lasted about three seconds. And then <laughs> when the meditation gets over, I'm going to call her up and really let her have it. Oh, wandering mind. Come back to the breath. And then another thing I'm going to do. Oh, come back to the breath. So this went on for about for a period of time until finally I realized I was fucking angry. I was in rage. The breath was nowhere to be found. <laughs> the anger was all over the place. And then I just realized that resistance is futile. We are the Borg. And um, that resistance is futile and that what's here is anger and rage. And that what I needed to do in my meditation was to allow myself to feel the pain, the anger of that rage. Now, every now and again, so I felt it in my body and this tightness and heat and, and infuriation and uh, all these feelings. And then every now and again, my mind would go off and, and I'm going to do this to her and I'm going to do that to her. And I'm like, oh, come back, come back to the feeling, anger, anger. So it's going back and forth, you know. Sometimes it'd go off into thoughts and perseverate and then spin back. No, it's the feeling of anger. Just feel that in the body. And as I stayed with this for a period of time, gradually, without me noticing where it shifted, but it did clearly shift that I was beginning to feel sad, incredibly sad. And then my practice this point, I need to feel the sadness. I don't know what this is about. I was angry. I'm sad. So feeling into the deep sadness. And then what came from just feeling that sadness, experiencing that sadness, this, this awareness became to arise of like, the pain of not being understood. The pain of not being seen. And I realized that this, this wasn't just with me and the administrator. This was going back in time. A long time. One of the deep pains of my life. Not being seen. Not being feeling enough. So I stayed with this. Gradually, just even morphed into like a deeper understanding. What is this that somehow I have to find 
this sense of being seen outside of me and can I rest in my own being with compassion? By the end of the meditation, as I drove home, there was no phone call to be made, there's no bridge to be burned. And actually I realized later that, you know, the administrator actually wasn't too off, that somehow I had been triggered. This is an inquiry. And part of the inquiry is that as I feel into the feelings, the feelings may begin to show you what's there. As you begin to understand, that understanding begins to set us free. This is why we call this practice insight meditation, helping us to see more clearly into what's here. It's so easy for us to go into our heads and try to think and figure it out. It's a noble attempt, but I think many of us know it, it often doesn't go anywhere. And actually, it's a way of actually getting away from the actual physical and emotional experience of the feelings, I, and I kind of just go into my head and kind of look back at them. It never gets resolved. So staying with the feelings. We're learning to give space to those feelings, to allow. I mentioned earlier that in some ways I think the meditation instructions could be boiled down after a while to just one word, allow. Or another word, let be. Achen Thai forest meditation teacher says, keep your mind still in any surrounding like a clear forest pool. And all kinds of wonderful and strange and mysterious animals will come and go, but you will be still. And in time, you will come to understand the nature of things. And you will know the happiness and the peace of one who has awakened. So keeping your mind still in any surrounding like a clear forest pool is our willingness to be present to what's here. And all those strange and mysterious and wonderful animals will come and go, but you will be still as we sit in our stillness, we will be visited by the multiple manifestations of the mind and the heart. As we stay and allow and give space, just like the sky gives space to the storm and the virtue of that space, the storm that's a category five gradually dissipates to a four, to a three, to a one. Without grasping, without clinging, letting it all be, we come to understand the nature of things. We know the happiness and the peace of the Buddha, or the one who has awakened. So this giving space, allowing. So we head into Christmas time. I've said this before. I know some of you have heard this, but I, I love the, the Frosty the Snowman and that little globe. And you, know, you shake him up and everything's going all chazarai, but Frosty's a meditator from way back. <laughs> doesn't move <laughs> like a clear forest pool. All kinds of things will come and go, but Frosty will be still. And things don't you know it after a while? It begins to settle. That globe gets clear. And in some ways, we are like Frosty since, and we go into this meditation hall and <laughs> we're getting shaken up. So we used to call the monastery the shit accelerator. We're getting shaken up, but we're learning to be still, grasping at nothing, 
and resisting nothing, the clarity begins to come. We begin to see more clearly. This clearly brings understanding that sets us free. This is why this practice is amazing. It's giving us understanding of the, of the causes of our suffering, and we experience freedom. It's a miracle. And that's why Thich Nhat Hanh wrote the book, Miracle of Mindfulness. We couldn't imagine, there's a powerful quote from Jennifer Wellwood, And it seems so counterintuitive, but she really writes it beautifully. She goes, willing to experience aloneness, I discover connection everywhere. Turning to face my fears, I meet the warrior who lives within. Opening to my losses, I gain the embrace of the universe. Surrendering into emptiness, I find fullness without end. For each condition that I flee from, it pursues me. In each condition I welcome transforms me. Each condition I flee from pursues me. Each condition I welcome transforms me. This has been our practice. We're beginning to have potluck with our demons, tea with the demons. It's an old Tibetan story, like this monk went out and came back to his cave and it was all filled with demons and they're all, ugh, and the monk's trying to get rid of them, and they, they won't go anywhere. So finally the monk says, all right, you guys can stay. And they all left. <laughs> so I know our time's getting up, but I'm going to do a little bit more. And I just want to speak a little bit about the importance of compassion. Miller Williams, he writes, have compassion for everyone that you meet even if they don't want it. And what seems to be conceit, bad manners, or cynicism is always a sign of things no ears have heard and no eyes have seen. You do not know what wars are going on way down there where the spirit meets the bone. Every one of us here way down there where the spirit meets the bone. Such an honor in our interviews that we get to go day down there where the spirit meets the bone. And it's, it's that no eyes have seen and no ears have heard. What we're all holding and living with is incredible. The importance of freeing our hearts is vital for our health and our well-being. The pain of living with a hardened heart is an imprisoned heart. Even in this retreat, I became aware of some hardness inside me. I've written three letters to people that I have some hardness with and to own my part and to see. I've actually invited some of you here in my personal interviews to write that letter. I remember one time at Spirit Rock, a father speaking about his estrangement from his son. It's been a couple of years, and have you tried to communicate? No. You know, this, well, how about writing him a letter? And we just explored the pain of the hardened heart, and I could see he was a little open. I brought him a pad and a pen. I went to the meditation hall and sat for a while, and I 
came back and I walked past the room that we had the interview in and there he was sitting writing. Didn't speak with him. But then a couple of years later he came back to another retreat and I saw him and I asked him about that letter and he's, and he's told me I, he did send it to his son. And it began the journey of reconciliation. To live with a hardened heart is a pained heart. And to me, one of the greatest PhDs or accomplishments of living is if I could die in my deathbed without any resentment in my heart, I will consider that to be a life well lived. And I was very fortunate that my mother-in-law, Charm, she's a very simple woman, um, not a meditator. She had a lot of betrayal in her life, a husband that abandoned her, cheated on her. And I, I was with her, you know, for a number of years till she died, and she forgave him and everyone. She didn't live with a burdened heart. She, she's been my teacher. Charmaine's her name. Like she died. I, I, I know it. I just know from being with her. She didn't have resentment. Resentment is like a poison in our hearts. It's like a poison. Grudges, resentment, the harboring of ill will is poisonous. And so I want to just appeal to you to work with the practices of reconciliation that begin first inside our own heart. Where does it begin? In here. And it's interesting now, you know, like with our hindsight wisdom, here we are whatever age we are and we can look back and with that wisdom we can begin to understand why we did what we did when we did what we did because of where we were. Oh, when I was a kid. Wes Nisker meditation teacher and comic, he has this, he wrote this very humorous story, like what if we actually were born at 100 years old and we had to go back in time and we died when we were born? And it's like, oh my God, I'm going back into high school. I have all this wisdom, but I'm losing it all because I'm going, I have to go, you know, it's, it's kind of good that it goes this way. And so we, that we have some wisdom to look back at what it is that we've done. Like, oh, as I look back, like, oh, I can see why, what that was. I, it's like looking there, I can see more clearly now the pain I was living with, the fears I was having. No wonder I was, and, and uh, no wonder. So the reconciliation for ourselves and our own narrative, our own story. If I've told myself for years that I'm going to amount to nothing and I feel like I'm nothing, like, oh, that's because of these causes and conditions that have fed this way. But now I'm seeing that came out of such a place of fear. And actually, I'm in this place now where I'm at this crossroad, at this juncture of trying to work with developing compassion for myself. And I'm seeing everything that's going against that. But it's the wise recognition has all been a part of what has brought us into this moment. It's all been a part of what brought us here. Can I begin to turn into my heart with compassion? It's not easy. The early years of practicing loving-kindness meditation, I used to have a nickname for myself. I used to call it the hating-kindness meditation because it brought up all my anger and hate. But then I realized, oh, those are my teachers. They're showing me where I'm stuck, where I actually need to bring more attention to, to open my heart. So we come up against self-compassion. There's a million stories why I, I can't do that. Those are the very places to be investigated, to be, to be held, eventually to be loved. It's a crying out for love. 
the reconciliation for ourselves, the reconciliation for those times when I've been unskillful and I've hurt another. As I look back at my hindsight wisdom, yeah, I can see more clearly where I was then and what I did. May there be the reconciliation to those that I've hurt. And lastly, and perhaps maybe even more difficultly, is the reconciliation for those that have hurt me. Not saying forgiveness begins with reconciliation. Maybe that reconciliation begins with neutralizing the poisonous energies of resentment and grudges that harden our heart. And we keep on pointing out, you screwed me over. And I'm pointing at you, one finger out, but there's three coming back at me like, who's suffering? You keep on saying you've screwed me over, but who's suffering? So again, that arrow, it's stuck in my leg, but I'm, I'm going to just walk around with my arrow on my leg. <laughs> I, and, and I'm not going to take it out. But then I realize, this is hurting. Maybe I need to first begin, pull out that arrow that's in my leg. The suffering of resentment and the grudges and the ill will is so toxic to our being. It hardens us. And the pain of living with a hardened heart. So we begin with that neutralization. And perhaps it's that wiser understanding that just when I understand more about how I've hurt another, and it's come from my own woundedness and fear, I begin to understand that those have hurt me. Perhaps it's come from their own unawareness. Norman Fisher wrote a retranslation of the book of Psalms and he replaced all this language of evil, unrighteous, wicked, to they were heedless. They were unmindful. They were unaware. Very important distinction. It was unaware heedless. So may we work with those that have hurt us to heal our own hearts. So I can go on and on, but I better stop. But maybe I'll just end with one thing. A poem. I love this poem. It's called Kindness by Naomi Shiab Nye. It says, Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things and feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. And what you held in your hand and what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscapes can be between the regions of kindness. And how you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop and the passengers eating corn and chickens that they'll stare out those windows forever. And before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where an Indian in a white poncho lies dead on the side of the road, and you must see how this could be you. And how that he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. And you must wake up with sorrow. And you must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of that cloth. And then it's only kindness that makes sense anymore. Then it's only kindness that makes sense anymore. It's only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to gaze at the bread. It's only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for and travels with you 
everywhere like a shadow or a friend. So the human body at peace with itself is more precious than the rarest of gems. Cherish your body. It's yours for this only one time. The human form is one with difficulty and it's easy to lose. All worldly things are brief, like lightning in the sky. This life, you must know, is a tiny splash of a raindrop. A thing of beauty that appears and disappears as it comes into being almost. The human body at peace with itself is more precious than the rarest of gems. That's from Tsongkhapa. We'll sit for a minute. May all beings discover the gateways into the heart, growing in awareness, loving kindness. May all beings be at peace.